good morning. It's good to see you guys. Like Molly said, like it's a Memorial Day weekend, but I'm, I'm really glad that we've got just familiar faces. Oh, familiar. There's Amy. Amy's here. Yes. Amy. Yeah, there she is. Yes. Amy guest. It's good to see you guys here this morning. My name is Levi Scott, and I serve as uh, the student pastor here at Fellowship Nashville. And uh, yeah, it's good. It's good to see you guys. Mm. Mm. It's good to see y'all. Uh, sorry, I love, I love just get just everybody all at once. I get to see your eyes, and it's, it's nice. Um, yeah. This morning, we are continuing our study through uh, the book of First Peter. And uh, if you were with us a few weeks ago, um, we finished our study through um, the parables of Jesus from the Gospels. And uh, while I'm sure a lot of us walked away with a lot of different things uh, from that sermon series, uh, one thing that I hope we all walked away with, because it was just mentioned over and over and over again, is the importance of context when reading ancient Near Eastern literature, and really any ancient literature. Um, and for the sake of the integrity of First Peter, um, and really any portion of Scripture, I want us to continue that practice this morning, and for us to kind of refresh our memories on the context of this letter. First uh, Peter was most likely written um, in the early 60s AD, and just a couple years prior to the great fire of Rome that occurred in 64 AD at the hands of Emperor Nero. And the communities in which Peter wrote were, can be found in uh, what is now modern-day Turkey and was made up of predominantly Gentile Christians. Um, and the choice that these communities made to identify as servants of Jesus Christ as opposed to servants of the Roman emperor was the basis of much of their suffering. Now, as we comb through uh, this letter, you'll notice that Peter organizes his writing a little differently when compared to somebody like Paul. Um, and actually, as a total aside, on the Albanian note, in the very top left corner, that little section is kind of the, the bottom end of Albania, which is super cool. So. Albania missions trip, 2022, going to be great. Um, but you'll notice as, uh, as P how Peter organizes the letter, it's different than someone like Paul who wrote a lot of the letters in uh, the New Testament. Um, Paul was very intelligent, incredibly organized, and his writings uh, reflected that as he would develop a theological point and then he would put application around it. For Peter, there isn't a lot of structure uh, to his writings, which if you look at his character as uh, Dave Bachman covered uh, a week ago, that kind of is very cool. It reflects his character a little bit. But there are a lot of consistent themes in the way that he writes, and so when scholars follow uh, are, are studying his word, they usually follow that line of, of themes. Uh, because of this, I'm not going to give you guys a question. I usually give you all a question to kind of mull over. We're not going to do that this morning. Uh, instead, we're just going to see what Peter has for us, and then I'll leave you with a few takeaways at the end. So today, uh, we'll be diving into uh, a song of praise to the Lord, uh, which directly follows the introduction Peter has in his letter. So if you have your Bibles, um, open them up to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 12. Uh, and if you don't have a copy of God's Word, uh, we'll have it up on the screen behind me. And uh, if you don't have a physical copy at all, uh, we do have some in the back uh, corner at our Connect Point. If you need a copy or if you know someone who needs a copy, just grab it and take it with you. We want everybody to have a copy of God's word. So if you all can follow along, I'll read for us 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 12. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, 
He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the, testing, the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you have believed in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things they have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Would you all pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for today, for the ability to serve you and to continue to explore your word, Lord. Give us open minds and open hearts to receive exactly what we need to this morning. We love you so much, it's because you love us first. It's in your son's name I pray, amen. A couple weeks ago, Mark took us through the introduction to this letter where Peter refers to the recipients of this letter as elect exiles. And Peter chooses this, uh, chooses this language very purposefully as it is a reference to Old Testament phrases used to describe the children of Israel. He, he chooses that language on purpose for a reason. As Peter is writing this letter, one of the first things he makes clear is that these Gentile Christians, like the Jewish Christians, are a part of God's family. Just as the Israelites were chosen by God to be a royal priesthood in a holy nation, see Exodus chapter 19, all followers of Jesus have been set apart by God and have been called to live differently than the world. Just as Israel was exiled in lands like Egypt and Babylon. So the Christians are exiles in, in this life as they look forward to the return of Jesus Christ when he will make all things new. All Christians, regardless of nationality, are chosen by God, and Peter wants these suffering Gentiles to know this. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 through 5 reflects this truth when it says, even if, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that he would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Paul, in his letter to the Ephesians, expresses the same truth that Peter does in his letter. God cho chose his people, Jew and Gentile, and predestined their place in the family before the foundations of the world. Before the earth was created, God chose his people, Jew and Gentile. This leads us into the beginning of our section this morning as Peter refers to Jesus as our Savior. With the introduction of this letter in mind, Peter has made it clear that Jesus is not just a Savior for the Israelites like him, 
but the savior of Gentiles who would call themselves Christ followers. Verse three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. There's so much in this verse. There's so much happening in this one verse. First of all, for all you language nerds out there, uh, Peter begins this song of praise with the word blessed. It's, the Greek, it's a Greek word that is the adjective form of the word eulageo. That's my southern accent way of pronouncing it. There's a better way to say it, but it's eulageo, which means to speak well of. It's literally the Greek word good. It's the E-U, the U sound. It's good, and the Greek word word, logos, eulagos, put together. It's a good word for God, to speak well of God. It's where we get the English word eulogy. They're cognates of each other. I remember when I was a kid, I hated writing thank you notes. I hated it. I actually, when I, when I put this story down, I did not think my mother was going to be here, and she is here, and I love it, and I'm giving her a shout out, which is awesome, but I hated writing thank you notes. I, I did not like it. I love writing letters now, but as a kid, you know, being, you, being told to do really anything, you're going to be like, oh, you know. And I couldn't stand it. Whenever I would get some sort of gift, whether it was you know, Christmas or Easter or you know, birthday or whatever, a gift from a friend or a relative, my mom would sit me in the dining room and would throw down a pile of envelopes and pens and markers and colored pencils and stamps and would bring out the, the tin that she kept all of the phone numbers and the addresses of all of our friends and family. And she'd put it all on the, the dining room table and she'd be like, okay, write your thank you notes. And she would so sweetly have this list of all of the people. Like while we were opening gifts, she would write down who gave the gift and what the gift was so that I you know, would know what to write. And any time that I would ask, you know, it's like, why do I have to write thank you notes? She would say, well, you know, it was your birthday and grandma and grandpa gave you a really sweet gift and you have to thank them for it. You know, so-and-so heard you, you wouldn't be quiet about this Star Wars toy or whatever, so they bought you this toy. You know, there's, there was always this, this reason for the gift. The thank you letters were for the gift specifically, but there was always a cause that brought about the, the receiving of the gifts. God deserves our thank you letters. God deserves to be spoken well of because of the great gifts he has given us. But before Peter gives us a list of all of these gifts that we have received, before he tells us what we need to write thank you letters for, he tells us the reason why we received gifts in the first place. I'm going to read verse 3 one more time. At least the first part. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. Everything we are, everything we have received, every gift we get is rooted in mercy. It's Christmas, so we get presents. God is merciful, and so he lavishes his children in gifts. Absolutely everything is because of God's mercy. Because of God's mercy... We are born again through Christ's resurrection and receive a living hope. Isaiah 64, 6 says that our most righteous moments are no better than filthy rags. I'm sure a lot of y'all have heard that verse before, filthy rags. Contextually, Isaiah is referring to the cloth used by uh, people who had the once uh, incurable disease, leprosy, the cloth that they would use to wrap up their bandages. Isaiah is saying that the best, possible, the best possible things that we could give God are the equivalent of used medical cloth. 
We deserve, listen to me, we deserve the wrath of God. That is what we deserve. That's what is rightfully ours. We, the created, deserved nothing. We didn't deserve anything. But because of God's mercy, he sent his son, Jesus, to take our place, to take the wrath of God that was rightfully ours. And as Jesus was raised from the dead, so God's children are born again into a new life that longs to live for Christ. Through Christ's perfect life and death on our behalf, we are raised with Christ into a new life. So it starts with mercy. It's according to mercy. Through the resurrection, the resurrection was a result of mercy, but through the resurrection, we are born again and then receive a living hope. Now the idea of hope is a concept that I think we often misinterpret. Uh, when we talk about hope, we often use it as a synonym for want. Like, I hope I get that. It's a, I want to get that. So for example, if I say, I, gosh, this makes me so sad. I hope the Tennessee Volunteers win a national championship in the next 10 years. I hope that happens. There is no guarantee of that. There, I, 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 have, I really want it to happen. But there's no guarantee of that happening. There's, there's behind that statement. But if Brett Rutledge, who was just up here, says, who's a big Alabama fan, if you don't know, uh, says, man, I hope the Crimson Tide wins the national championship this upcoming season, his odds, I think, are way more likely than mine. I still, have, I, I still want it to happen. I will not give up. And when the Vols finally win, I'm, it's going to be amazing. But... Yeah, it's, it's, not, it's not very likely. That's, not, that's when I say I hope, it's the want. However, when Scripture talks about hope, uh, it's different. Biblical hope isn't an optimistic outlook based on what is likely to happen, like the statistical odds of happening. Rather, it is a confident expectation and waiting based on who we know the Lord to be. It is a confident expectation in who we know the Lord to be. In the days of the prophets, when the people of Israel are once again turning from God, the prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 8, 17, I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. The psalmist says something similar in Psalm 39, 7, when it says, and now, O Lord, for what do I wait my Hope is in you. That's two different uh, words for hope. What do I wait? My hope is in you. The idea behind hope is confident expectation in the Lord because they know who the Lord is and what he has done. They, they see the Lord's work in the past and they look forward for God to be consistent in the future. That's why God is constantly calling his people to remember. Remember, I am the one who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Our student ministry just got done with FSM, and how many times it's just like, remember, I'm the one who brought you out of the land of Egypt. I'm the one, remember, remember, remember. Uh, fun fact, actually, in, uh, the first time in uh, the Hebrew Bible that we actually see recorded where God says, hey, Moses, write this down. Uh, is in Exodus chapter 17 after they've had a battle with the Amalekites and God has given them victory. Uh, Moses says, hey, you need to write this down so that you remember, so that you don't forget. But Peter calls the hope we receive a living hope. He calls it a living hope. Why would he call it a living hope? Because 
like the ancient people of Israel who look back on how God liberated them from slavery, Christians look back at what Jesus did on the cross as he liberated us from our sin. And just like the Israelites look forward to a future day when God dwells with his people, Christians look forward to the promise of Christ's return, a promise that John records in Revelation chapter 21, verses three and four. I'm gonna read that for y'all. And heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eye. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Our hope rests on the resurrection of God, the resurrected God, the living God who will return someday to make all things new. Our hope is a result of and is built upon the resurrection. We look forward to the return of the risen Christ. Just like Israel, we look forward to the day when the injustice of this earth is taken care of. Verse four and five. I told you there was a lot in verse three. There's a whole lot. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. There's more family language there. It's very cool. Peter tells these Gentile believers that they have an inheritance waiting for them. Not only are they welcomed into the family, but they receive an inheritance as sons and daughters of the king. According to God's mercy, when we are born again through the resurrection of Jesus, we are promised an inheritance, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept and guarded. All of this language communicates longevity, sustainability. It's not going anywhere. It's being kept in heaven for you. By God's power, through faith, you have something waiting at the end that doesn't have an expiration date. What, waits, what awaits you in the, is promised by God and, of, and is available to his children completely because of his mercy. This inheritance is not earned. It is graciously given. Our salvation, God's love, the breath in our lungs, it is all a gift. We have not earned any of it, and we can't earn it. Verse six and seven. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Verse six and seven are not the easiest to read, especially during our current climate. Often people can use these verses to undermine the pain or suffering and disregard what people are going through. What Peter is not saying is that we should be happy or put on a smile when we are experiencing the horrifying evil that occurs in this world. This verse is not encouraging us to dumb down or discount the effects of trauma and hardship people witness or experience in this life. 
One of the easiest verse to quote, verses to quote in the entire Bible is John eleven thirty five. 35. Jesus wept. I remember growing up, people would be like, I memorized my memory verse this week. What is it? Oh, Jesus wept. Be like, okay, that, that's cheating, but I, it counts. And yet the context of this moment, we've talk, we talked about it when we went through the book of John a little bit ago, and we've, I, think, I feel like we've talked about it a little bit since, but the context of this moment is often overlooked. Jesus, the God of the universe, the participant in creation, fully God, there at creation, before time began, cried, wept over the death of a friend who was about to be resurrected from the dead. Like, he, he's in control of all time and space. He created everything. We, we literally read it. He's like, I got I to gotta go. Lazarus is asleep. Lazarus is asleep. We got to go wake him up. Like, we read it. Jesus is fully aware of what is about to happen. He's not... Like, oh, I've got an idea. I'm going to resurrect Lazarus. This is, he planned this. And yet, he wept with Mary and Martha and all of his friends who are mourning the loss of their friend Lazarus. He wept with them. As Christians, we are not called to diminish the effects of pain. Pain is the worst Sin is the worst. We're called to weep with those who weep. That's in Romans chapter 12. We're called to weep with those who weep as we endure. I'm going to look at that verse again within context. The previous verses, Peter talks about the inheritance that awaits us that we just talked about. And with our inheritance in mind, We should express our joy, be full of joy, rejoice. That's what that means, being full of joy. That while we suffer for a brief period, our faith is refined, that there might be praise and glory and honor when Jesus returns. Joy is a fruit of the Spirit. Joy is something we receive because of Christ. It's not just happiness that can come and go like any emotion, but it's something we receive through the power of the Spirit that allows us to have an eternal perspective of our life through Christ forever. This eternal perspective is our awareness of what is to come. We know our time on earth is short. We know suffering won't last. And we know that what awaits us is eternity. We rejoice knowing that not only are our trials temporary, but they make our faith more genuine. Like a purifying fire, the trials of this life will burn off anything we know isn't genuine. In suffering, we aren't called to make light of it, but rather recognize that a faith that fully submits to Christ will endure. But when life ends, or Jesus returns, whichever comes first, those who have endured the purifying fire of life will receive praise and glory and honor in the presence of God for our faith that stood firm through the trials. I don't know about y'all, but whenever I uh, visualize like the moment where we get to be in God's presence fully and we get that well done, good and faithful servant, that's just goosebumps, you guys, for me. Like, to, to, 
to look Jesus in the eyes and for him to say, Levi, you did it. You're done. No, no more. No more pain. No more crying. No more mourning. No more heartbreak. You did it. You're done. Now you get an eternity of Sabbath with me. Rest forever. You did it. You're done. You ran the race. You crossed the finish line. You're done. That's going to be great, you guys. That's what we're looking forward to. That's what we're excited about. The day, this is not forever. The stuff we're experiencing is is not going to be forever. God is going to come back and say, all right, that's it. We're done. Only rest for my children now. It's going to be good. It's going to be good. All right, eight and nine. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Peter then brings us back to the present situation. We cannot see and have not seen Jesus in person. We, we, we haven't gotten that privilege. And yet, by faith, we rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible because the outcome of our faith means the salvation of our very souls. The truth is so unshakable and just life-altering that it produces a joy that is unexplained. Peter knows that the vast majority of Gentiles hearing this letter didn't actually get to see Jesus in person. I love that we can relate to that. I love that. Like Maybe some, I don't know, maybe some living in those areas got to see Jesus in person, but the vast majority of them, if not all of them, didn't get that. I also love this second statement Peter makes here. He says, though you do not, he says, though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him. Peter says that we will get to see him. He knows this. Revelation chapter 22, the last part of Revelation, verses 7 and 12 and 20 say, this is Jesus saying, and behold, I am coming soon. Behold, I am coming soon. Surely I am coming soon. We will get to see Jesus face to face someday. That is a privilege that we will get to have as his children. That's going to be awesome. That's going to be so cool. Okay, last three verses. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the suffering of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they, have been, they were serving not themselves but you in things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. To show how much privilege it is to possess salvation in Christ and to have the ability to look back on what has already happened, Peter refers to the prophets. Through the power of the Spirit of Christ, these prophets of the Old Testament 
knew a savior was coming and that the messianic prophecies would be fulfilled. The son of man, the snake crusher, Emmanuel, God with us, is coming. He's on his way. These great messianic mysteries that the prophets looked forward to are answered, fully answered in Jesus. The longing of the hearts of the prophets had been fully revealed and we get to look back and see it in its fullness. We get to do that. We as people who live under, or rather after, the resurrection of Jesus live in such privilege. We can look in the Hebrew Old Testament and see prophecy upon prophecy that it can essentially be summarized as, oh man, he's coming. Oh boy, he's coming. The snake crusher, the one who's gonna take care of all of it, he's on his way and oh man, it's gonna be awesome. Even the angels stooped down to peek at what was happening in great anticipation. Angels are not all-powerful. They're not all-knowing. Only God is. And they were anticipating the coming of the Messiah, too. You can see that in, in the gospel narrative. In, in Jesus, we're talking about the birth of Christ. You see the angels are like, oh, man, it's happening. Oh, boy, get ready. Peter, Peter is closing out this section by showing the reader how utterly privileged and spoiled they are to live in the day when the messianic prophecies are fully realized. Thousands of years they waited for this. And we, get to, we have the privilege of fully experiencing it, fully seeing how it all came together. And we have the ability to remember it historically. Jesus lived, Jesus died, and Jesus rose from the grave. I'm going to go ahead and welcome the band back up here, and I'm going to leave you with three uh, takeaways. This is just, if you, if I came up and said, good morning, and you just conked out, this is the three things I want you guys to remember. These are the big things, like the summaries of 1 Peter 1, 3 through 12. These are what I want you to remember. And I got the, the summaries up there, but I'm going to add a little verbiage to it. Because of God's mercy... We are welcomed into an eternal family, a family that has been born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in response to this great mercy, we gladly lavish the Lord with good words of praise. That's number one. Number two, as we look back and remember the resurrection of Jesus, we simultaneously look forward in hope as we await the return of our resurrected Christ. And on that return, we will receive an inheritance promised to God's children. Number three, the trials we experience in life act like a purifying fire for our faith. As our faith ex experiences and endures hardship, it becomes deeper and richer. The impure and disingenuous pieces burn away, leaving behind what is real and authentic. Through these trials, we endure and choose to rely on the character and promises of God rather than our own understanding. If you follow Jesus, if you follow Jesus, if he is your king and you serve him above all else, trials are going to come. Jesus tells us that in the gospel. It will happen, not maybe it will. It will happen. If you follow Jesus, the world is going to say, I don't like that, and it will happen. Some difficult and some life-shattering. I don't know what you're going through. 
Like, I don't know what suffering you're enduring right now. I've, I've gotten to hear some of y'all's stories and the, and the pain that you carry, but I don't, fully, I don't fully know the depth of what it is. Only you know that, but also God knows that. The merciful God who died for you looks upon you and smiles. He he loves you. Not only does he love you, he is fully aware, not only of what you're going through, but of of how sinful we are. And yet, he sent his son to die for us so that we, just riddled in sin, could be claimed by the creator of the universe as his children. We are his children. He loves you. He loves you so much that in his mercy, he saved you. And because of that, we are given a hope that no trial can take away. A living hope. A living hope and a living savior that is coming back soon to make all things right. He is coming back. This is not forever. We know it's not forever because we can read it over and over and over and over again. We know God's character. It is consistent through all of scripture. And when he says, I'm coming back, that means he's coming back. When he says he loves us, it means he loves us. We are given a living hope by the creator of the universe who looks at his created and says, you are my children. I'm so thankful for that. I'm so thankful it doesn't stop here. And I'm so thankful that we can look forward to a day when death and mourning and crying and fear and violence and assault and all these horrifying things taken care of. I'm so glad that we have that. Would you guys pray with me this morning? Heavenly Father, we need you. You know we need you, which is why you sent your son If we ever doubt your love, I am so grateful that we can look back at the cross and know without a a doubt that you do love us. You sacrificed your son so that we could have life, so that we could be rescued from our own sin, the sin of this world. Thank you for giving us a living hope, a living hope in Jesus. Thank you for loving us so that we have the opportunity to love you in return. And it's in your son's name I pray, amen.